The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the life of David. As you know, we've kind of gone into uh, extended play, if you will, on the life of David. I'm thinking of the old pinball games, right? You get into extended play on the pinball game, right? We're we're doing that with the life of David because David has already passed away. And so what we're looking at now really is the legacy of David's life as we're looking at Solomon and the beginning of his reign and the things that are taking place there. And there are just, there are just some wonderful lessons that we can learn from the beginning of, um, of Solomon's uh, reign as king over Israel. And, and so I don't want to miss those. And so we're going to look at those. I've actually still been in prayer, as I mentioned, regarding what comes next and had some suggestions, uh, actually had one suggestion that we would go through and look at the whole divided kingdom era with all the different kings of the north and the kings of the south. And I'm praying about that one, but there's also book studies we could do. Um, there's other things. I, one of the things I'm praying about, by the way, that we could do is uh, we could actually, uh, what do you think? We could actually go through and do a Life of Christ series since we are uh, born-again believers in Jesus Christ and he is our Savior. Maybe it would be a good idea to Study his life. What do you think? It might be. That's one of the ones I'm praying about, so just something to think about. Um, anyway, just keep, keep lifting that up in prayer, and we'll see how that goes. But in this Life of David study, we've moved on, and we're actually looking at the beginning of Solomon's reign, and we'll look at that here in a moment. We need to start with some silent prayer because it's imperative upon us that we approach these things the right way. So we're going to take, some, take a moment for silent prayer. It gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've blessed us with this opportunity to gather here at the church. We thank you that we have this opportunity to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you also that we have this opportunity to consider what your word has to say because we know our souls need to be nourished by your word. Just as the land around us needs the precious rain, we also need your precious word to rain upon our souls. And we ask that while we are studying your word this morning that you would set aside distractions of our daily lives, help us to focus our thoughts in on what it is you're trying to help us learn today that we might indeed grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. I actually have a couple things I'm going to talk about real quick before we dive into life of David, a life of Solomon, actually, in sort of in a way, life of Solomon. Um, and one of them is uh, we just recently had the anniversary of uh, 9-11. And, of course, 9-11, you know, there's a couple of things to think about with regard to 9-11, the original incident, 9-11-2001, but then also what happened after that, you know, the whole thing in Benghazi and whatnot. But uh, we need to keep all of that lifted in prayer. But I, I know it's, this is also true for, for some of you, but, but I, I personally, I just wanted to share this with the congregation. I personally am, am moved to tears every time uh, that anniversary rolls around and I think about it. I some of you know this and some of you don't, but on uh, September 11, 2001, I landed in an airplane in Milan, Italy, and uh, got on a 
a taxi they called it. it was basically a minivan but they took took me over to a little town in the foothills of the alps called biella and i was there to do some work and i was sitting in the sitting in my uh little table area there with my computer and was working and all of a sudden uh one of the people in the room turned around and looked at me and said i'm seeing some very strange pictures from the united states what's going on and i said i have no idea and so at that point basically that was how i learned about 9-11. I was in Milan, and if, if any of you remember, uh, in the airspace over the United States was closed. So I had no idea I was going to get home. I was talking to, I mean, for, so, so one of the things I mentioned, one of the things that was really tough about it for me is I was over there by myself. I mean, I didn't have any, I was, I, I didn't have any coworkers with me. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any family. It's not like I couldn't call. I talked to him on the phone, but I was in Milan by myself you know, and here all of this is happening in the U.S., and so it was a deeply moving thing for me to, to see that, and I know it was for a lot of you as well. Um, I actually already had made plans uh, to potentially pay to get on a cargo ship to come home because uh, I couldn't fly home, and the, uh, the, all, the, all the cruise ships kind of things, the passenger ships, those were gone. Those were all booked up. They were gone. There was no hope of getting one of those. So I was thinking, could I even maybe pay my way onto a cargo ship or could I fly somewhere? Could I fly to Argentina or something and then drive up, you know, and come home that way? How was I, how was I going to get home, you know? So it was really bizarre. Of course, I was over there for two weeks. And if you remember, by the time that was over, two weeks later, uh, the airspace was open again. So the flight that I had originally booked was available and I came home and I got on the, on the international flight over to the States. I mean, this was a, one of those big planes, right? It's always one of those big, uh, jetliners that I was on. There were like four of us on the whole plane. I mean, nobody was flying, right? It was weird. The whole thing, I walk into the airport, Malpensa there in Milan. I walk back into the airport when I, when I flew in like a normal airport, right? When I come back, there's military all over the place. There's guns everywhere. You know what? I was thankful for it, right? I was thinking, yes, I'm glad you're here. You know, I mean, it was insane. Those times were insane, and I can't forget that. I just can't forget it. It's something that will be with me uh, for the rest of my life. And I, I think about, you know, my mom, who's about to turn 88, and, uh, you know, she had that experience with Pearl Harbor, for example, right? When she she found out about Pearl Harbor, I mean, you know, what they went through with regard to the attack on us over there in, the, in the Pearl Harbor there in Hawaii. And, and I just, you know, all of us were moved by it. And so I just, I just pray every, every September 11th, I pray for, for folks that people will never forget, right? I mean, that was a very moving thing. And anyway, I, I just, uh, I, I don't know if you all have the same experience or not, but it brings me to tears uh, every year when we have the celebration of that. I'm also going to talk to you about something important <clears throat> out of, again, the, some of the reading we've been doing in Ezekiel. Um, we just read this recently, and it struck me. Uh, at the end of the seven, of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, of course, he's talking to Ezekiel here. He calls him Son of man. I have appointed you a watchman. It's interesting. We were just singing in uh, softly and tenderly about Jesus being the watchman, right? He's, watch, he's waiting and watching. I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. All right, now this is Ezekiel, but I feel like, quite frankly, to the church, that's what pastors, to the local church, this is the same thing for a pastor. There's application today. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked 
from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Wow. Think about that. Put that in, bring that forward application today. Uh, if I, as the shepherd of a local church, if I don't tell you about wickedness and I don't warn you about wicked ways and I don't warn you about these things. Now, there's a context here that you've got to keep in mind. But the message is a pastor is supposed to tell you about these things. Pastor is supposed to be speaking to you about what is righteous and what is unrighteous and give you warnings about what's going to happen for the wickedness. Verse 19, this says, yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or his or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered yourself. Now, the point of the point of the matter is what that means is as a as a pastor of a local church, I got I got a double whammy, right? I get the double whammy because if one of you fails in your Christian walk, I'm going to imply it to the, to the realm of the Christian walk. If one of you fails in the Christian walk and I have failed to teach you about the Christian walk, I have failed to talk to you about how you can fail and how you can succeed in the Christian walk, how you can have victory, then not only do you fail, but it's on me too. It's on me too. So that's a stern warning to Ezekiel, but it applies to the pastor today. Uh, in fact, uh, James, in the beginning of chapter 3 in James, he said, let not many of you become teachers. <laughs> and that was a fair warning, right? I took that warning very seriously. It goes on to talk about the righteous man turning away from his righteousness as well. Uh, it says, again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity in it, I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his, in his sin and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Now this, again, this is a warning for the people of Israel, but nonetheless, an application for us today, that's a warning. But notice in, this, notice in this passage, it does not remove personal responsibility. So the wicked man who doesn't turn from his way, he still has responsibility for his decision. But the watchman, if he didn't warn the watchman is also responsible, right? There's a responsibility there. The righteous man who turns from his way, if he turns from his way, that's his own responsibility. He still has responsibility before God, but the watchman needs to warn. That's why, I mean, I take these passages very seriously. When I read these things, I take them very seriously. That's why I will not preach to you a good news, happy, be lucky, you know, kind of message where you, you never hear the bad news. You need to hear the bad news. I need to tell you the bad news. And not just to save myself, not just to deliver myself from trouble. The, the whole thing about it is, why does God put that double whammy on the watchman? Because he's assigned the watchman there, and that's his whole thing to do, right? Because, look at the benefit. Look at the benefit, because the wicked might turn from his way. Correct? The wicked might turn from his way. And if you go on in that passage, you actually see that the righteous might actually not turn towards wickedness, but instead stay the course of righteousness. So... Reality of it is, as I preach these things to you, it benefits you, and I care about that. I love all of you, and I want you to be, to be blessed by God's word. But boy, when I was reading through that, it just hit me again. One more time, when I read that passage, it hit me again. I have got to preach the word, whether it's the word that talks about God's blessings, or it's the word that talks about God's discipline, or it's the word that gives warnings about what happens if you veer from the path. Whatever it is, I have to give you the message of God's word because it's going to be a blessing to you, and that's what I'm called to do. And if I shirk my responsibility, I'm going to be, I'm going to be held responsible for that. Make sense? 
So it's very important. So as I preach these things, when sometimes you walk out of here and you feel like I was meddling, as Jesse likes to say, when you feel like I've been meddling in your life, well, there's a reason for that. I'm supposed to meddle, right? I'm supposed to. All right, on to the lesson. Solomon's officials and blessings. Solomon established administrative leadership over Israel. So he's established his king, and now he establishes administrative leadership over Israel. And we're going to look at it piece by piece uh, here as we go through this section, 1 Kings chapter 4. The first thing it says, now now King Solomon was king over all Israel. That's just to help us understand there was no no division at this point. He's king over all of Israel. Uh, And in verses 2 through 6, it talks about his chief officials. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Eliharef and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Adahud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. We'll talk about that in a minute. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. I'll talk about that as well. Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram, was, uh, the son of Abda, was over the men subject to forced labor. All right, take a look at this. First of all, uh, Azariah and his, uh, is the son of Zadok, and Azariah and Zadok were the priest and high priest. Zadok was the high priest. Uh, Azariah was a priest. Now, in verse 4, it says, And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And that's mentioned there because, remember, Abiathar was a priest under David. Remember that? Well, one of the very first things that Solomon did as part of his being king was he he deposed him. Remember, Abiathar had followed Adonijah. And because of his rebellion and because of the things that he had done, Solomon deposed him. He said, he didn't kill him. He just said, you're out of here. You're no longer serving as priest. But he was listed here, as, first of all, as an honorarium and because he was priest for a very brief period of time before he was deposed. But he's not going to be priest anymore. We, we know that. But Zadok, he's the high priest, and his son, Azariah, is serving as priest. And that's the message we have here in this section. Uh, we have uh, Eliharef, and, uh, and I think I misspelled that. I think it's P-H. Yes, it is. I misspelled that. It's Eliharef with a P-H and Ahijah were secretaries, which really was scribes. That's what's entailed with being a secretary is somebody who's a scribe, somebody who would uh, take down all of the the notations and whatnot. And then you have Jehoshaphat as the recorder, really the record keeper. I mean, even here at this church, we have someone whose whose ministry is to be over the records of the church. They have to keep track of all the records of the church. And uh, that's what the recorder did. That's what the recorder did was keep track of all of the records uh, on, the, on the kingdom. And then Benaiah, remember Benaiah uh, had been over the king's guard when it was David, but now he's over the whole army. He is the commander of the entire army at this point. Uh, Azariah, a different Azariah, this is the son of Nathan, uh, as an overseer of the governors. It said deputies in there, but we're going to see in the next section that these deputies, if we want to have really a modern term for it, it would be like a governor, somebody who's over one of the regions uh, within the within the, the country of Israel. And then when Zabud, when it said that he's a, the king's friend, what that is is that's his personal advisor. This is the person who's there that, that gives advice directly to the king. He's, a, he's the, his right-hand man, if you will, personal advisor. Uh, and then Ahishar was the house manager of the palace. Um, when it talks about... Um, Right here, over the household. 
Now, the palace hasn't been built yet, but Solomon's living somewhere. And this is the, this is the person who's going to be over, who's going to be the, the, the head, the master, if you will, over the whole house, taking care of the palace and over everyone there. And so wherever Solomon lives at this point, uh, this is the person who's taking care of it. But that person will also, Ahishar, will also be over the palace once Solomon builds it. This whole administration that he's setting up, by the way, is not just at the beginning. It's basically something that's going to be around for a while. These are his, these are his chief officials. And then Adoniram, head of the labor. And we're going to see, by the way, that that's going to become important when we get to the building of the temple. Because, giving you a little preview of what's to come, when it comes around time to do that, they're going to, uh, they're going to actually be sending people over uh, to do some of the work of getting the materials ready for the building of the temple. And so uh, Adoniram is going to be a part of that because he's going to send the people over to do the work uh, to, to get the materials for the temple. He then appoints his district governors in the various districts of the land, and that's where your, uh, your map is going to come in handy, verses 7 through 19. First of all, uh, Ben-Hur in Ephraim, verse 8. Let's take a look at that in verse it starts out in verse 7. It says Solomon had uh, 12 deputies or governors, if you will, over all Israel who provided. Now, notice what it says here. We're going to get back to this. Oh, and I have something else I want to say in just a second. I'll come back to it. Who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month in the year. Now, what do you reckon that is? These are districts. These are regions in the area. And these are governors over that. And one month out of every year, there's 12 districts, 12 governors. One month out of the year, they got to provide for Solomon. What, what's the modern day equivalent of that? taxes. <laughs> That's what they're doing. They're going to pay taxes so that they can provide for this, the, the government, if you will, of Solomon. Back here, I want to back up. I skipped this and I didn't mean to do this. Um, in verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies and Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend or his personal advisor. Uh, Nathan over the deputies, he's, he's overseeing the governors, right? He's, uh, Azariah here, son of Nathan, was over the governors. Um, this is an interesting question, and I spent a little bit of time on it. We don't, know if, we don't know if this is the same Nathan in both of these. This is Azariah, the son of Nathan, and this is Zabud, the son of Nathan. Those might not be the same Nathans. Those might be two different Nathans. Uh, and I tried to look into it a little bit, and there's no way to know. But because of the context of it, the way it's presented, remember, that's very common in the Hebrew is to say a person's name and who they're the son of. But it's not necessarily the same Nathan. It could be two different Nathans. And so we don't know if they're actually brothers. It could be, but we're not sure. But and the reality of it is sometimes you'll see in the text, you wonder why sometimes it says it'll say something like Azariah, the son of Nathan, who's the son of who's the son of who's the son of. And they give like four people in the line. And part of the reason that that's done is so you can figure out who exactly this is, right? What is the line to that person? In this case, it wasn't significant enough to do that, but uh, I, t I did spend a little bit of time looking at that to try to figure out if those were the same Nathan, and we just don't know. We just don't know. Um, oh, Ephraim, I meant, to turn to, I meant to turn to my map. So you can look on your map, and what we have here is they numbered it for us. They made it easy, right? If you look on your map, there's number one. This, by the way, came out of the Bible Knowledge uh, Commentary, the BKC, and they have it numbered for us. Number one, the first one listed is right here in Ephraim, in this region, a fairly large region, fairly large region. Then we get to Ben-Dakur, uh, over Shalbim and Beth Shemesh, etc. That's in verse 9. Let me read that for you. Um, Ben-Dakur and Makaz and Shalbim and Beth Shemesh and 
Elana Beth Hanan, all of the all of that. And that's the region on your map. If you want to know where that is, that's this region over here. There's Shalbim and not all of the cities are listed, but Shalbim and Beth Shemesh are listed here. But it's this little region right here. This is the district uh, that he is over. Then we have Ben Hased over Araboth in verse 10. Uh, ben Hased in Araboth, and it says Soko was his in all the land of Hefer. And so if we go take a look at that on the map, it's going to be number three right here, Hefer, Sokoth. This is this region right here, right next to the, the Great Sea or the Mediterranean there. Next, we have um, Ben Abinadab over Dor there in verse 11. 11, Ben Abinadab in all the height of Dor, Tafath. Now, this is interesting. Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, was his wife. Now, I don't think that that's the case at the time of his naming because Solomon's not very old yet. Right? Solomon's relatively young when he becomes king. But what this is, and that's why I like the way the... Um, New American Standard translators put that in parentheses because this is talking about what would happen as, as time went on. He, she, he, she would become his wife, right, later on down the road. So he was named to this position, uh, and I don't believe Tafath was his wife at the time, but he was going uh, to marry Tafath later on, Ben Abinadab, over door. And that's uh, number four, which is up here. Again, right there on the coast. This is the region right there. Notice Mount Carmel is listed right there, shown right there. And then we have Bana, Ahilud, son of Ahilud, uh, in Tenach, Beth Shean, etc., verse 12. Uh, Bana, son of Ahilud, in Tenach, and Megiddo, and all Beth Shean, which is beside Zarathon, below Jezreel, from Beth Shean to Abel Mehola, as far as the other side of the Jachmean. Ma'am, excuse me. So uh, this is this is a region being described here in verse 12, but you probably can't map that out. So look at this area. Part of the reason that the description is so in detail. Look at where this area goes. Ooh, way down here, all the way back up here. And what is that right there? What is that? Anybody know what that is? That's the Jordan. Exactly. That's the Jordan River. So here is that region. That's why there was so much in terms of the description of it. It's that whole region all throughout there uh, that he is the governor over. You, said, you guys said you like maps. So now you can see it. Now you can see it. Ben-Gabur of Ramoth-Gilead, verse 13. Uh, Ben-Gabur and Ramoth-Gilead, a little parentheses here. The towns of Jair, the sons of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, were his. The region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars, were his. So that's uh, that's our next one, number six, which is way over here. Look at this. This is the region in, in, in uh, describing being described there. That's the district. All right. You guys tracking with me so far? Ahinadab in Mahanaim. Remember, Mahanaim was important in David's life because he went up there as part of the various things that took place in the the his travels and whatnot mahanaim in verse 14 uh Hinnadab, the son of edo in mahanaim and that is in uh, this region right here there's mahanaim and this is uh, the the region quite a large region right there all right and then we have ahimaz naftali in verse 15 oh sorry I'm trying to negotiate this correctly, but I'm not doing great. Let's see. Ahimaz, 
in Naphtali. He also married Basamath, the daughter of Solomon. Again, I believe that's later. That's later. Naphtali. So we've got to go to number eight, which right up here. Naphtali. That whole region there. All right. And again, these are the various districts. But you, think, you know, this, the thing is, this is important. He divided up the land and had these governors over the land. Now we have a different Bena. This is the son of Hushai. All right. Earlier we had the Bena that was the son of Ahilud. Now we have Bena, the son of Hushai, over Asher uh, in verse 16. The Bena, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Baloth. So we go take a look at that on our map. Should be number nine right over here. Good sized region as well. We have Jehoshaphat over Issachar in verse 17. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar. And on our map, that's going to be number 10 right here in this area. All right. And then hopefully those of you who are listening to the live audio, you've got the documents in front of you and you're following along. (laughs) Shimei uh, over Benjamin. And I don't think this is the same Shimei, Uh, right? It's not the same Shimei over Benjamin, verse 18. Uh, Shimei, the son of Eli, and Benjamin. And on our map, that's number 11, which is down here. Remember, Benjamin's right next to Judah. All right. Benjamin's right next to Judah, right down there. you got Gibeon and all right there. All right. And here we go. I've got Geber over Gilead, or Gad, in verse 19. Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the, uh, the country of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan, and he was the only deputy he was in that land. That's why, why mention that? Uh, well, because it is a fairly large area here. Now, he could have said the same thing about this region, right? But he didn't. But he said that this, this only one here because this is a fairly large area. So that's your layout. And you notice you can see the surrounding areas. Now, anybody notice anything on your map? What's that? Judah's not listed. And I believe that... Well, there's part of that, but, but right, yeah, but, but Judah is not mentioned, right? Judah is not mentioned, and I believe the reason for that is, is what's in Judah? Jerusalem, Jerusalem right? This is where Solomon is, right? Well, I don't know if it's uh, shown on this map or not, right? I'm not sure it's listed on this map or not. Uh, I don't know that it, there's the Ar- Ar- Aram, Phoenicia, it's all there. It may not be listed on here, on this particular map. There's Moab, Moabites, Philistia. Um, but uh, but Judah is not listed and there's it's not really, you know, there's no text here that says and Judah was not part of this because they were excluded from taxes. But I get the impression that that's true, that uh, if the citizens of Judah, if they did actually provide, it's just not mentioned here. Uh, but that's where they, they don't he doesn't need a governor there because he's there. Right. He's there. He doesn't need a governor to cover that region because he's taking care of it himself. He and his personal local administration is taking care of it. But as far as taxation goes, we really don't know. It's not mentioned. And if you think about it, I, my guess is they made some kind of a provision. But the idea was he broke it up into 12 districts and each one provided for a month. So he had all 12 months of the year covered. Right. So he really didn't need Judah to do that. So perhaps they provided in some other way. But the scripture doesn't say. Yes, sir. So was there some gerrymandering going on? Uh, Here's what I'm going to say. If you look at the shapes of some of these regions, I think it's likely. It's likely. 
uh, that there were these were crafted in a certain way. Now, what the reason? Now the question becomes why. So was it that the person that he appointed as governor over a region like this one did, it, was that a, a region where those were people who all knew him very well and he was going to be able to be well respected as the governor and all these kinds of things? We don't have the answer to that. But yet, if you look at the lines that are done here, it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting, right? Uh, even Asher is kind of interesting in its shape and. So, yeah, I think there probably was there was I think there was probably a meeting or two about this whole thing. Right. It looks like it could be based on population. Some of it. Some of it's probably based on population, because some of these areas that are rather large in terms of geography probably don't have a huge population. Uh, you're going to have dense populations over here uh, closer to the ocean and so the sea. So probably those are fairly well, well uh, populated. But we don't have the answer. I mean, all of this is pure speculation. Because it doesn't say why he divided them up this way. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Number. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Asher. If you look at Asher, exactly. If you look at number two here, the area of Shalbim, Beth Shemesh, and all of that, it does come over and it touches the coast. If you look at Asher, there's that little piece right there. Uh, near Mount Carmel, where it goes over and touches the coast. So that probably was designed that way on purpose. They had to support their king for a month. And if you think about it, if you have access to this and you can have actually, if you can have uh, commerce where you're dealing with the ships going in and out, that's going to help you in terms of the commerce of the area. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of thought went into it. I will say that. Whether it was, see, when I think of gerrymandering, though, I think of political in nature, right? That it was political. And it could have been, right? It could have been political. Or it could have been socioeconomical in basis. We don't know, right? We're not sure what the decisions were. But there seems to be some craftiness there, right, in terms of how those things were laid out. So I found that interesting. But but Judah was definitely left out of that whole list. The the people of, of Judah were not mentioned in all of that. But I believe in some way they still provided for the king. Now, Solomon and all of Israel prospered while he was king. That's in the next section, starting in verse 20. The people of Israel were numerous and lived in comfort and prosperity. Verse 20. Judah and Israel, you know, notice, even though we aren't, so even though we aren't into the period of the divided kingdom, remember, when David was becoming king of Israel, that there was already a little bit of a division that entered into the whole picture. Because remember, the people of Judah took David as their king, but the other people decided not to. And so there was already a little, eventually they did, but I'm talking about in the beginning. So there was already this sort of this division of Judah and the rest of you guys. And so it's mentioned that way here in this passage but again, it's mentioned that way really in terms of the unity of it rather than looking forward to the divided kingdom. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now, when I read that, I don't have it in the notes. I, all I have in the notes is people of Israel were numerous and lived in comfort and prosperity. And that's certainly what's mentioned in that verse. But what, what popped into your brain... And again, you are all, everybody in this room, as far as I'm aware, you're all students of the Bible. What popped into your brain when I said, I read, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore? The Abrahamic promise. Yeah. 
Abraham was promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's exactly right. So what you should have thought of immediately is this is one of those verses that shows you the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. Exactly. So, uh, but the, the language of they were eating and drinking and rejoicing is that things were going well. They were living in comfort. They were living uh, prosperous lives. Solomon's domain was quite extensive and kings brought him tribute or taxes. Verse 21. Now notice what it says here. Now Solomon ruled over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now that involves more than just Israel. There were others that were he actually had dominion over, even though they were not strictly Judah or Israel. So there were other kingdoms that he had dominion over, and they brought they brought taxes and paid uh, tribute, if you will, to uh, to Solomon. So his reach went beyond even the the borders of Israel in terms of his um, dominion. That's the best way to describe it, because he actually had uh, a little bit of control over even some of the kings of other lands and it was because they wanted to have peace with him and with Israel. Solomon was well provided for, which is another indication of the nation's prosperity in verses 22 and 23. Look what it says. It says, look at what it, this is interesting. I don't believe this is just uh, Solomon by himself, by the way, because Solomon would have to weigh like 700 pounds or something if this was his his own. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelle, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Now, so this was a daily provision. I believe that's for everybody in the administration. That's for Solomon's house, for all the people that were there. Again, that's way more than, than one person. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I mean, I love a good steak with the best of them, but, uh, but uh, that's, a, that's a bit much for one person. Solomon's dominion over the region allowed Israel to enjoy peace and safety, Uh, This is something, why is this important? Why is this significant? And we'll talk about it in just a minute. Let's read it first. For he had dominion over everything west of the river from Tifshah, even to Gaza, uh, over all the kings west of the river. And he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So why is that significant? Why why is it mentioned here in 1 Kings chapter 4? It was a promise to David, right? It was because remember in David's lifetime, because of his iniquities, he, he had consequences. In his lifetime, there was no peace. There was always, it, it seems like when we read through his, his reign, it's like he just gets over some kind of a conflict that's going on and then something else happens. It's either from without or from within, right? Am I, am I right that it either, either somebody from somewhere else, the Philistines came up and started causing trouble or one of his sons you know, would rise up and rebel against him. He, there, there was, it seems like even as great a king as David was, there was always turbulence and it was promised that it would be that way because of his iniquities. But for Solomon, it was promised that his son, that Solomon that came after him would have peace. And, it, and in fact, it's happened. Now, one of the things, this, this language, every man under his vine and under his fig tree is, is that language of being able to, you're not having to go out and come in. You're not having to be part and go out in the army and fight for the country and come back in. You're just able to be there under your vine and your fig tree at home. And it's this, by the way, this is not um, forced isolation. There was no coronavirus. They're not forced to stay here, right? They are, they're there because they want to be, right? This is what they want. 
But notice this language from Dan even to Beersheba. Now, this is important because it does describe the, the land that they occupied. But important thing to keep in mind is even, even though the, his dominion is large and even though the people of Israel had a, a very large uh, section that they possessed at the time, in terms of eschatology, it's important to remember they still didn't occupy all that was promised to Israel. They never have. They will. They will one day, but they have not yet. Israel has never occupied all of the territory, even under Solomon. They did not, even though they had great uh, stretch, you know, ab- abundance of land that they possessed at the time. Uh, they did not occupy all that had been promised to Israel. All right. Uh, Solomon had many horses and horsemen indicating a strong and well-supplied army. I think that's why this language is here. Solomon had, by the way, I believe this would, should be 4,000. I think this is a scribal error. If you go to um, Second Chronicles 9.25, I'll just read it from the pop-up there. Now, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. I believe here in First uh, Kings it is a uh, scribal error. I think Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. All that really is mentioning is that it's like if we were to say today, you know, we've got a well-prepared, well-supplied army. We have the air, we have the air superiority we need. We've got, um, you know, the tactical weaponry that we need in order to be successful. And that's, that's basically what that language is. I saw a hand go up. Yeah, occasionally, so the idea that this is the first time they had horses, actually occasionally if you go back and you look at it, there were times when they would actually come across some as part of conquering another land. They would actually uh, be able to take some of the of the horses and whatnot as part of occupying it. But this is where it's, this is the first time it's really listed as part of their own army. Yeah, not something that they captured. It's their own army. Uh, well, cavalry, I guess, right? So, <laughs> so. Yeah, if you had 40,000 stalls of horses and you only had the 12,000, you've got you're a little shy, right? You need a Yeah, the yeah, that's what the Yeah, that's what the note says. What the note says here is um one manuscript reads 4,000 and that's the one in Second Chronicles. Yeah. So Yeah, they would use more than one horse. There's no doubt about that, but if you think about it, even even if you did that, even if you did that, you're still maybe going to be shy in this regard because a lot of the horses, uh, a lot of the horses were uh, you wouldn't use them all at the same time. Typically, you do some horses would be in service and other ones wouldn't be. But I think the I think the forty thousand is just kind of kind of large. If you have forty thousand stalls, that's a huge number. So there's a scribal error somewhere though, right? Because Second Chronicles says one things and one thing and uh, and First Kings says another. So there's a scribal error somewhere. I think this is the one that has the error, but could be either way. It's a well-supplied army. That's the real key. Everybody, he's got a military that's, that's well-supplied. The governors supplied for Solomon and the military by faithfully paying their taxes. So what was mentioned in the first part that we looked at was that they, he had divided things up and he had put governors over these areas to, to provide through the taxation. And now in these verses 27 and 28, we see that they did do what they were asked to do. The deputies or the governors provided for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table. See, that's what I mentioned. You know, there's more, it's more than just King Solomon. 
Each in his month, they left nothing lacking. So that tells you that these governors were faithful, right? They were faithful. They also brought barley and straw for the horses and shift, uh, excuse me, and swift uh, sea steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. So not only that, they were providing for Solomon and they were providing for their military forces as well. They were providing for the horses. Um, so that's important. That's a very good thing. So he's established his administration and they're faithful. They're faithfully paying their taxes and they're supporting uh, Solomon's administration. And now here at the end of the chapter in uh, at, at verses 29 through 34, Solomon's God-given wisdom became known by many surrounding nations. Uh, Solomon had, great, had received great wisdom, discernment, and intelligence from God. That's how we start in verse 29. Now, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment. Sorry, let me back up. Very great discernment and breadth of mind. Now, that's, that's mentioned here, which wasn't mentioned before. Uh, wisdom and discernment. It was mentioned that he was given those, but then it says, and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. What does that mean? In other words, he was not limited to one or two little areas of knowledge. He was given great understanding of many, many, many things. Right. So what the how God blessed Solomon was not. Remember, he went way above and beyond what Solomon asked for. Solomon asked for wisdom to be able to judge the people of Israel because he knew what a what a responsibility that was to be able to judge God's people. But God gave him even more and not just in terms of riches and wealth. but God gave him even more understanding and even more knowledge than what he asked for. Everything. He had this breadth of mind. He was able to understand so many things. If we go to First Kings uh, back 312 where the promise was done, he said, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. And then he says, So that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. In other words, he's going to be above and beyond everyone in his time and, and, and thereafter. And thereafter. Uh, his wisdom exceeded all of the well-known wise men of the day and was renowned in all the surrounding nations. Verses 30 and 31. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all... Hold on a second. Where did I lose it? Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. So first of all, Egypt was... One of those places where people looked to it and said, well, there's a lot of really wise people in Egypt. That was a country that it was known for the wisdom. But his wisdom surpassed all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, uh, Haman, Kalkol, Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. All right. And I do have some notes here um, about Ethan. Ethan the Ezrahite is actually someone who wrote, one of our Psalms, Psalm 89, was written by Ethan the Ezraite. So not only was he a wise man, he was a man of God, right? He was a man of God. And so he actually uh, wrote uh, Psalm 89, a maskum of Ethan the Ezraite. So, so this is a list of, of, of people that are well-known wise men of the day. And he was, his wisdom exceeded all of them and became known in all of the surrounding nations. And then Solomon was prolific in his writings. If you look at verse uh, 32, he also spoke uh, 3,000. Talked about him speaking it, but we're going to see how that, that also turned into writings. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. That's pretty astounding, folks. That's huge. 
He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. I mean, that's, it's, we, thought, we think about David and his, how prolific he was in terms of songwriting and whatnot. I mean, this is astounding. This is really astounding. It's amazing. Um, hundreds of his 3,000 Proverbs are perver- preserved in what we call the book of Proverbs. And also there's some in Ecclesiastes. If you go in there, you'll find some Proverbs as well in Ecclesiastes. Um, and then the Song of Solomon, of course, our, a book of our Bible. The Song of Solomon is one of his songs. We don't know, you know, uh, where some of the other ones may be recorded. Uh, there are some uh, psalms, believe it or not, that some people think might be written by Solomon, the ones that are attested to. A lot of them are attested to David. We know that. But there are some that we don't have attestation to, and some people think Solomon may have written them. Uh, his knowledge extended into the sciences of uh, botany and zoology. So that's when it talked about the breadth of mind. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. So God gave him wisdom over not only the plant world, right, the the idea of the botany, but also zoology in terms of the animals. Now, I've mentioned this before. This seemed like a great opportunity to mention it again. We are at a point, if you go back and you look at history, Sir Isaac Newton was a man of God, and he was a scientist, and Sir Isaac Newton came up with some amazing, amazing things, right? Some amazing discoveries and, and, and really contributed to the science that we have today. Uh, we still even honor him by talking about, well, this is Newtonian in nature, right? So certain things are categorized as Newtonian in nature. But the reality of it is he was a man of God and he approached his scientific endeavors from the standpoint of, I want to know, I, this is God's creation. And he's put it here and he wants us to explore it. He wants us to investigate. He wants us to, to learn about how amazing he is through exploring his very creation. And that was his mindset. Today, the vast majority of science, unfortunately, is anti-God. I mean, that's sadly, sadly, it's true. I'm not saying all of it. I'm just saying there's a lot of science out there that is, is anti-God. They, they are establishing a, a premise by which they're operating, which is the idea that God doesn't exist, and they're exploring the universe, not as a created thing, created by a creator, but a thing that uh, is self-existent. To them, the thing that's eternal is the universe. That has, it has always been. And they're exploring it. And I just wonder, I asked the question and I can't answer it, but I wonder, we're, we, we're, we have seen amazing scientific progress in my lifetime. In my lifetime. If you want... Nothing more than some evidence, that little thing right there, right? My little phone that I have in my pocket, not at the moment, but the phone that I carry around in my pocket, that's unbelievable how much power and capability is in that little bitty thing. That scientific achievement that's just un- unbelievable. But where would we be if God was blessing it like he was blessing Solomon to understand these things? Where would we be? We- well... That's where I want to be is in heaven, right? That's where I want to be is in heaven. But no, but I'm saying my point is I think if God was blessing what we were doing, we would be even further down the road, you know. And somebody mentioned to me, I thought it was hilarious. Um, somebody mentioned to me, gosh, I wish I could remember who it was. If it's somebody here, let me know that it was you that said this, um, that they were, they were watching one of the old Star Trek episodes 
And, you know, when, when Star Trek was made and they were doing all that stuff with the communicators and all the other things they were doing, it seemed like, well, this is crazy. There's no way they'll be able to have technology like this. It seems so futuristic. And now it looks clunky. It looks, ar- it looks archaic, right? It looks really clunky compared to what we have today. But look at this. Look at this. This is that breadth of wisdom that we talked about, how he came to not – his wisdom was not just in the area of knowing how to deal with people and not just knowing how to set up an administration and not just knowing how to – to, to do the things that he was doing as king, but he actually had wisdom that extended all the way out into the sciences. And this is what's mentioned here is the trees and the animals, but could it have been more? We don't know. Possibly he had knowledge in terms of area, but when it comes, for example, when it comes to the construction of the temple, did he have wisdom in terms of the construction of the temple? I believe God was blessing him on all fronts. I think he had unbelievable uh, knowledge and wisdom, and it just was spectacular. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, such things can cause us to uh, become arrogant, which, uh, which happened in, in Solomon's life. People came from far and wide to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So here we have in verse 34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So when it says that, that first line, by the way, uh, the first line there is a bit of all, a bit of hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? Where you exaggerate something for the purpose of emphasis. Uh, it came from all, he came, men came from all peoples. Well, that sounds like men came from over the entire earth. But the second half of the verse qualifies it, by the way. That's why it doesn't bother me. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. That's important, right? All of those who had heard about Solomon's wisdom sent uh, sent people over or went themselves uh, to hear his wisdom. So I'm okay with that hyperbole. It's fine. Uh, nonetheless, uh, whether it was hyperbole or not, nonetheless, visitors came from many faraway places. And, and importantly, Solomon, Solomon openly welcomed them. He did, not, you know, he did not push people away. If they came, he welcomed them in. He was, they were welcome to come. And it wasn't a matter of, uh, at that point anyway, in the beginning, it wasn't a matter of arrogance or anything. He just was very welcoming to whoever would come. Well, we haven't gotten to the concubines yet. We're going to get to that. Well, so I'm not going to question Solomon's wisdom because Solomon's wisdom was God-given. What I'm going que- to question is his discretion, his volitional choices. Uh, he made some poor choices, but the wisdom that he received, he, he received from God. Uh, these kings that came from everywhere understood that Solomon's wisdom had indeed come from God. If we look at Second Chronicles uh, 9.23, I love this. It says, and all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. I believe that people, whether, the, whether these kings were believers or not, uh, I think these, these kings understood that, that the Lord had given him this wisdom. Right. So whether they were truly believers or not, they understood, wait a minute, Solomon has been blessed with this wisdom and they wanted to be partakers of it. And we're going to there's going to be we're going to study something to do with that as well as part of this study on Solomon. So there's a lot we can learn from all of this. Certainly where Solomon ends up failing is something for us to learn from. Who else that you can think of? So Solomon was granted this amazing wisdom from God. I mean, amazing wisdom. I mean, we would be astounded by him today if we were to hear him. And everybody thinks, well, yeah, but he was back in a time when, you know, they weren't. 
People weren't smart back then. They were dumb. You know, now we're really smart. That's, people think that kind of thing. They do. Uh, I'm sorry. If Solomon were around today, he would blow our minds. He would, he would know so much. Hang on a second. Who else? Who else? I, mean, I want you to really think wide and far. Who else was given amazing wisdom and understanding? Well, Adam was. Yeah, I want you to go back further than that. Well, Christ, of course, yes. What's that? Satan. Satan, as, a, as an angel, when he was created as an angel, he was given incredible. First of all, he was beautiful, absolutely an amazing, beautiful, and brilliant. Brilliant. What happened, to, what happened to Satan? He was corrupted, corrupted because of his own splendor. Well, that's what happened to Solomon. Solomon made the same mistake because he was given so much, and he ended up being corrupted because of his own splendor. Yes. Well, you know it did eventually. In the beginning, it didn't, because you're going to see when we study, for example, the dedication of the temple and the things that come after that, Solomon is actually quite humble in the beginning. But eventually, eventually, he fails. Yes? Yeah, it didn't say anything. In verse 33, it talks about botany and zoology. It talks about the trees and it talks about the animals, but it didn't say he was studying the stars. I mean, he didn't, you know, he wasn't looking up at the stars and trying to learn about them. Uh, that's left out. Yes. Yeah, so what, what Jesse's bringing up is the, ma- the, the massive nature of the universe. So first of all, you've got to remember, um, God, in, in, in his infinite wisdom, he creates a domain, and then he puts individuals into the domain. And so the, what, we under, what we should understand is the earth is the domain of Ad- the Adamic race, the human race. The, the rest of the universe, that's the domain of the angels, so if you want to have some sort of an idea of how many angels there are, just take a look at the universe. But it's so amazing. It's so expansive and so amazing. What Jesse was talking about is they put the Hubble up, right? So the Hubble is important in terms of scientific discovery because you get this telescope up there that's outside of the atmosphere. So now you don't have the atmospheric problems trying to see through the atmosphere. And they pointed the Hubble toward one of the dar- darkest areas of the universe. And sure enough, as it was, as it was gathering light, Stars and planets and other things appeared. They were able to see that there were actually things even there in the in the darkest area of the universe. So the universe is massive, but yet, but yet for some reason it's not mentioned here that Solomon took the time. Now, was that a matter of his faith? Did he look at it and say, you know, this is all God's creation, but the earth was created for us, and so I'm going to explore. If you go back to the Genesis record and you look at all of that, the plants and the animals and all that were created. Was he focusing on those things because? This is his domain, is the earth, and he's focusing on those things, or is it just not mentioned? We don't know, right? We don't know. That was an agrarian society. That was an agrarian. They were very much agrarian. Oh, after the flood, they could could eat the animals. That's right. After the flood, they could eat animals. Before that, they were vegetarians, but... (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, that's, he's right. He's talking about the man who walks the earth, and that's right. So he talks about that. But, but he's talking about, you're right, it's an agrarian society. He's focusing on the things of that society and so on and his domain. But I believe his mind went everywhere. I think if I, if I, I'm speculating, so forgive me that, but I think when Solomon was walking on, on, on the earth at night and he looked up and saw the stars, I think he, I think he wanted to know. I think he wanted to know. I think he was given that kind of a mind that wanted to know. It's just, it's not mentioned here. It's not mentioned anywhere in the scriptures, but I think he wanted to know. All right, our scripture of the week, Ezekiel 18.23. We'll all read it together. All right, here we go. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. See, so he goes on to talk about a righteous man turning away and the other things that happen there. But do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Now, he's talking in this section, in the context of this section, he's talking about the mercy that he shows when a wicked man turns from his sins which he's committed and observes the statutes and practices justice and righteousness. He shall surely live and he shall not die. And then he goes on and talking about a righteous man turning away and the things that happens to the righteous man. And right in the middle of all of that where he's... And by the way, what Ezekiel's teaching Israel here is, you know what? You guys might have been righteous at some point, but you're not anymore. <laughs> so, and he's telling them, you have turned from your ways. He does it in the context of talking about individual men, a wicked man and a righteous man. But this is a message for Israel to understand how they have become wicked. They are worshiping idols. They're sacrificing their children. They're, they're putting them through the fire. They're doing horrible things. They're doing just absolutely horrible things. And so, but then he tells them right in the middle of all of this, he says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. In other words, what happens to someone who is wicked? What happens to someone and what they receive from God for their wickedness, whether it's, you know, discipline to a believer who's acting wickedly or whatever it might be, that what, how God deals with the unbelievers and so on, um, it's not pleasing to God. He wants that individual that they should turn from their wicked ways and walk in righteousness. That's always his desire. But you see, God is going to deal with us as we behave. That's what the message is here. So what we do now, thanks be to God. I'm going to start with this. Thanks be to God that my salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. Because when I get to the Bema seat and I watch the wood, hay and stubble light up the night sky because the fire is so big uh, I don't want that to be the basis upon which I either get to heaven or I don't. My, my salvation and yours is, all, is based on faith alone and Christ alone. But God still is evaluate, evaluating your life right now here as a believer walking on the earth. He's evaluating everything you do and, and w the decisions you make have an impact. Yes, sir. Pray for life, right? Yeah, Right. Pray for life. Pray that you would walk in a manner that's pleasing in God's sight, that you that you would. You know, and when we talk about life and life abundant, right, when when the scripture tells us that we've been given life and life abundant, it's not talking about us running around in our carnality, is it? It's not talking about us in, us uh, indulging the pleasures of the flesh. The, the abundant life he has for us is not 
seeking self-interest. The abundant life he has for us is our eyes fixed solely and securely on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, that we're living our lives for him. But he doesn't, he's not pleased when we walk in carnality. He's not pleased. By the way, do you know anyone who's an unbeliever who's in this place? Do you know anyone who is in this position that, that they are walking in darkness and that's, their own, that's the only thing they can do because they're unbelievers and they don't have any other way? Pray for them, as you said. Pray for them. Pray that God will open their eyes. The Holy Spirit, when the Father draws and the Holy Spirit convicts, it's an amazing thing. And it is something that's powerful, and we need to be praying for that. Because God, is, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not want that to happen. But yet, he has granted to each of us the ability to choose. The ability to choose what we're going to do. As unbelievers, we have choices. As believers, we have choices. Right? So we can either choose the things that are pleasing to God, or we can do otherwise. And what he says in this passage, I'm not going to go through all of it. What he says in this passage is God is going to deal with us accordingly. That's how it works. If someone rejects, God has laid salvation out and made it as, could he have made it any easier? Really, when you think about it, could he have made it any easier? Here, I give you my son. He died for you. All you need to do is believe in him and you can have eternal life. He made it as easy as he could. And yet some people will still resist. Some people will still reject. And when they do, God deals with them accordingly. When a believer walks in darkness, he deals with us accordingly. That's what this whole passage is about. But do you think he's pleased to have to discipline us? He does, he does discipline us, and I, I've taught it before. It's a, it's a function of love. God disciplines us out of love. But do you think he's pleased, or would he rather us walk in a worthy manner? Yeah, I mean, clearly, he would rather us walk in a worthy manner. In fact, the whole purpose of the discipline is to get us back on track. So God deals with us accordingly. But this is very, this is very important to understand. God's, this is a picture into God's heart. Think about that. This is a picture into God's heart. It does not please him. It does not please him that the wicked would die. He would much rather see them turn from their ways and live. And that's an important message for us to understand. This is where we have scriptures in the New Testament that speak to the same idea. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to salvation and to the knowledge of his, his son, right? That's the whole thing. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But yet he grants, us the, he grants us the volition to make our choices and deals with us accordingly. And that's true of all of us as his children. He deals with us accordingly. I mean, David, he, David was a man after God's own heart. And he dealt with the consequences of his sins because God dealt with him accordingly, right? Important to keep in mind. But God does not want anyone to perish that way. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to study your word. We thank you for this opportunity to see the life of Solomon and the decision that he's making early on in his reign as king. The opportunity to understand the wisdom that you gave him and blessed him with. And uh, how he was recognized for his wisdom and not just that he had wisdom, but that it came from you. And what a witness he was early on in his life uh, and early on in his reign. And Father, we uh, thank you also for what we're going to be learning about how that ended up turning into a disaster when he became arrogant and prideful about his, what he had in his life. And 
We ask that you would help us not to, not to do that in our own lives, that we would stay the course, that we would be faithful. We know that you're always faithful, Father. You are always faithful, but we can be faithless. We can, we can wander off the path, but we ask that you would keep us on the right path. And discipline's part of that. But Father, we thank you for this verse in Ezekiel that reminds us that you don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. You deal with us as you, as you must. You deal with us as a righteous and holy God would deal with us. And we don't want you to do anything differently. But Father, it is not pleasing to you when you have to deal with a wicked person that way. You want them to turn from their ways. And Father, we, we also, when we wander off the path, you want us to get back on the path as well. And we thank you for having a heart like that, that you want us to walk in that manner that's pleasing in your sight. You want us to have the life abundant. Father, these are, these are encouraging messages. It's always good when we get a glimpse into your heart and know more about how you think. Father, we thank you for the reminders today. We ask that you would help us to retain what we've learned today, to take these things, even if they were reminders of things we've learned before, Father. Help us to retain these things. Help us to apply them in our daily lives, the daily decisions that we make. Help us to remember Jesus, our Savior, and what he did for us on the cross, to never forget the sacrifice that had to be made so that we could actually be called your children. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. We thank you for all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.